Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. Now on Distinct Nostalgia, we continue our comedy writing legends series as we meet Jan Etherington, who together with her husband Gavin Petrie penned Second Thoughts, one of the most successful and enduring British sitcoms of the 1990s. Starring James Bolam and Linda Bellingham, it followed the lives of two middle-aged divorcees and lasted for five series. Jan and Gavin created a plethora of other hits, as well as starring roles for some of TV's best female talent, including Penelope Keith, Belinda Lang and Julia Sawala. Jan's latest sitcom creation, Conversations from a Long Marriage, stars Joanna Lumley and has just begun a second series in the coveted 6.30 evening slot on Radio 4. Here's part two of Ashley's chat with Jan. We begin where we left off at the end of Second Thought's fifth and final series. Enjoy! Why did it come to an end then? Well, you know, I think you have to quit while you're ahead, but the thing was... Um, London Weekend were asking us what we'd like to do next. And, you know, you can go on. Not many shows go on after five series. Um, That's an awfully long time. Um, Unless they're American, of course. Um, So, and the idea was that it might be really interesting for Linda and Julia to be two women living together. She going through the change, Linda and Julia going through... um, the blooming of her life you know she was off on gap year and and it was it there was no particular reason why we couldn't have gone on forever I think if we'd put our foot down we could have done but I think the kids were growing up that was the thing and they were moving at the age when they would have left home and in fact Julia does go to university um and so there was a point where they would both be on their own which would have been fine but the interesting relationship going on from there was Linda hitting the menopause and splitting up with James, we thought, and Julia coming back to share her life. Not very welcome, but turning up on the night she was due to go out for her first date with Jeff Raw. Um, and so it was just a case of... So that's, what, that's, that's what, so that's what led to Faith in the Future, basically? Yeah, Faith in the Future was just... Uh, the result of quite a few friends we had were splitting up and learning how to live on their own and a lot of disapproval from their kids about how they dressed and who they went out with and all that. And it was not necessarily a um, an area that had been particularly explored in comedy uh, as uh, a divorced woman, as Faith was. It was just a new episode of her life and... No, no reason why that relationship with Bill, with James, would have lasted forever because they were both pretty volatile. And I don't think there was a horrific parting, but we didn't really go into that. We just started a whole new series with a different premise, but with the history being referred to. I mean, in the first episode, our friend says, oh, and who did I think of, you know, to invite to supper? You and what's his name? You're Scottish? And she then explains that they're not together anymore. And the wonderful Trisha George played her friend, 
who uh, who later on split up with her own husband and was even funnier in the episode. So, so you you were you were sort of breaking territory and new ground in a way because the, you know we often talk about it now in terms of women's representation, but back then there weren't many things where women were sort of taking the lead, was there? You know what I mean? So, no, and I think um, well, you know, Carla Lane obviously did a lot um, to put women in the front, but there had been a, a fallow period, certainly for women in comedy. Uh, where the men took the lead. And uh, I think even, you know, in with Richard Beckinsale, the threesome, uh, Robin's Nest and things, you had, um, uh, Richard O'Sullivan rather, you had uh, a, a man taking the lead over the two women in the show, even though actually it was a three-hander. Uh, but I'd always wanted to write about women I wanted to see on television. And I didn't want women who were unable to put their point of view, uh, not strong about what they wanted in life, not pursuant, in what, you know, not, not on equal footing with the men they met. And Linda, and accompanied with that, was that wonderful empathy she had, as I said, with the, the warmth that she had. So she wasn't some confrontational, aggressive um uh, she was a, she was a strong awful. she was a strong as a as an as an individual uh, away from yes. being an actor she was a strong woman with with sensitivity she was a sensitive woman she yes, had empathy exactly. and in the part she played she she did the same didn't she it was the, she the did. strong woman with she, empathy you know? she did and she had she absolutely was a strong actress therefore she could play a strong woman and we wanted her to play that strong woman um, and so the encounters she had in faith in the future. She was quite played quite a decisive role in that relationship, and and you got three series out of that. So it lasted, yeah, we could have got more actually. Really, I think. really, because it's quite it's quite difficult, isn't it, to do a follow up kind of thing and to, for it to be successful. It is. I think Faith in the Future was massively successful with quite surprising crit- critics. Time Out loved it, you know, even them, and it also won British Comedy Award in '97. So it it got a trim, and it, we had Simon Pegg in it, of course. We picked him up from the gutter and made him what he is today. Actually, he wasn't He wasn't in the first two series. We had a lovely actor called Charlie Creed Miles playing Jules, who was catatonically in love with Julia's character, Hannah. And, um, and Charlie, Charlie was physically one of the funniest actors that I've ever seen, which meant that you had to have three or four cameras on him. Because although Sylvia, our director, was very strict with the camera moves, Charlie would just be off message entirely. She would say, no, you, you're on that mark, then you go there, then you... But he wouldn't, not because he didn't want to, but because he was in the zone, so to speak. So he would sort of fall over three tables in the bar while explaining why he had just passed his eye test. And, um, and she wouldn't know where he was going to land. But that was his great charm, and he was physically a very funny actor. But he didn't want to do the third series because he was working with Ray Winston, I think, who'd said, oh, you don't want to do sitcom, you you know, you'd be in a film, which is tr- Charlie's made a great career in film. But Julia said to him, you can make both. You don't have to be specific. You can do really good comedy and you can do a really good straight film. Well, look at Jimmy Bolan. Mean, he's done tons of comedy exactly. and drama, hasn't he? You know, exactly. And Jeff Rowe and people, you know, we've had, uh, obviously, William Gaunt, people that um, we've been working with over the years, but he he uh, had made his mind up, and so we had uh, this uh, Humphrey Barclay, who was then head of comedy at LWT, who was fantastic. Said, uh, "There's this young sort of stand-up in, in 
who's just doing some nice stuff. And Simon came in and he, he said he walked around the rehearsal room in Balham for about three or four hours because he was so worried about coming and meeting Linda and Julia and Jeff. But he was brilliant. And because he had two, he has the same character, but he, he was, had different skills. So whereas um, uh, Charlie could skateboard and play the guitar, Simon wasn't too hot at either of those because we had quite a lot of him playing in a band. And, but Simon could tell jokes, obviously. So we had a, wrote a lovely scene where he was still leading this band, but the power all went down because he trod on the guitar lead. And they said, fill in, fill in, fill in. And we wrote this speech for Simon. But he said, do you mind if I... I said, no, you, honestly, Simon, you ad-lib it. You do what you want, what's comfortable for you, because I knew how skillful it was. So he talked about for about two or three minutes about Chewbacca and his obsession with Star Wars. And <laughs> it was just brilliant. And he, of course, loved, everybody loved him. He was a great friend for Jeff Raw. Julia was together with him. And we did a film, an episode in France together. And it was hilarious. And he was a really terrific addition to the cast. And it was that series that won the British Comedy Award. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, all right? Oh, yeah. I'm trying, yeah. trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Hey, me, me, yo, love, 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 we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We gonna have this like, bro. Me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know. We play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta don't lie. Play don't it, play with it. No. Take that shit seriously. We'll talk. I want to talk briefly about some of the other things in a moment, and obviously bring us up to date with your your latest project. But just tell us a little about you were a husband and wife team writing together. Yeah. How did? I was asking the the other guys, you know, I was asking uh, Clement and Lafrene, and and also you know the other chaps yesterday um, about how they work together. How do you work together as a husband and wife team? Because you've obviously you've obviously got you know you're working together and you're also yeah, living, living together. Well, and you, you, you know, know it's interesting because we can't go around Sainsbury's without a fight. So it's amazing that we can sit and write together. But the thing is, we don't. What we don't do is tend to sit and write alternate words. You know, I will tend to do. A scene in my head, and Gavin, being an editor in real life, will be tending to work more on the structure of the scene and the episode, and we talk, 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 talk through it, and read it aloud. Gosh, all the time. Dog always thinks we're having a fight, you know, which is probably true. Um, and then we don't speak for a few days, and then we come back and start again. So it it is a it's an organic thing, but fundamentally, what we're trying to do is say it's come out with something we both think is right and funny both things because you know a lot of uh, jokes put gags in when of course that's the last thing you should put in a comedy you should get the humor out of the characters as John Sullivan knows in Only Fools and Horses and you know John Morton in W1A and all those people who are writing great comedy know that it comes out of the characters and the jokes are the first things you should ditch so we just used to write things that made us laugh out loud basically and then, you know, argue about whose was the best. And 
and you know it's it is you have to you have to stop at some point and say look we're not talking about this anymore because it does obviously we've been writing comedy together for 30 years it's a long time and as I said when it was originally we got together he was my editor and I was a mere freelance so I was red penciled out of any feature bits he didn't like and now we were an equal partnership I insisted so he had to buy me a very decent bottle of wine if he was going to take out my storylines but so it was so we didn't we did sit across the desk of each other but usually that came later what would happen was we would do some work he would do it on the structure I would do it on probably on the dialogue on the scene um there was a series we did on radio called the change yeah with uh with Linda Bellingham again with a goddess <laughs> that is Linda well it's exactly again the reason was I didn't particularly write it for Linda but we just thought she had the empathy to carry it off because it was a difficult role. She was married to a man who wore women's clothes. I mean, he was heterosexual, but he wore women's clothes. And all I had in my head for this was that on the evening after their daughter's wedding, Carol, her character, would go upstairs and change out of her wedding outfit and George would come downstairs wearing it. And I had this image... And he would say, now the kids have left home, I can be what I want to be, and I want to be Georgina. And, of course, she went through all the emotional chaos of you you would have had any secret in a marriage, adultery, gambling, drink, whatever, betrayal, and um, is it me? Are you gay? You know, And I just thought it was just an astoundingly good idea for a series. It's very interesting. Especially very in interesting. radio. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is, you, you ran that for six parts, you did that. But basically, we did that, yeah. but basically, um, this, we did it for three series. Three, three series, fantastic, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It was, it was, it is common, and and basically, you know, um, I'm from the, um, I've got an LGBT background. I'm, I'm a B within the LGBT, but my partner's a G. <laughs> so we're, yeah. so but we, but what, but we know we have no desire whatsoever to dress up as women. But I know no. lots of straight men, and it's largely straight men it who are transvest- transvestites who dress up as. Largely men in the forces, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, and, the, and there's, in Manchester, so, where we are, there is a there has been for a long time now uh, beneath the the gay village. Uh, there is a changing room where men who come yes. from all over Greater Manchester and they go in there and they change into their new personas, or yeah. some of them might even get changed in the car coming from Stockport or I whatever. Can imagine, yeah, and, and they're living. And it's a very interesting. I think the thing about the change, I honestly think it was ahead of its time because we did a pilot. Back in, well, a few years before that, actually, about probably about 97, 96, with Alison Stedman and Kenneth Cranham playing the leads. We did it for the wonderful Tony Garnett, who was running World Productions, and he fought like Billio to get it onto BBC. Janet Street Porter was very pro it. She was then head of independent comedy productions. And um, I just think that it was just too early. If we'd, if we'd written it, about five years ago, it would have... I mean, Radio 4 came back to it in 2000. Uh, and as I said, we did three series. And it was really interesting because we we really... We, we didn't... Until we we wrote it, and then we talked to the women who are married to heterosexual trans folk. It's the Beaumont Society. And said, what do you think? Is this what you would feel like? And they just loved the idea that it was exactly... You know, you feel angry, but you, you see, she said... He, doesn't look well he doesn't look like Julia Roberts you know he he, look, he looks like Selma Barlow from Coronation but he's happy you know you have that type of, and it was so important to feel to be able to put that across and it 
radio, to be fair, is actually the best medium for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. EastEnders did try it, didn't they? They did a, they did a little. The, the, the guy who played the, I've forgotten the actor's name now. Uh, he's called uh, Les in the in the program. The guy who was the Undertaker for a while in EastEnders. Um, it turned out towards the end of the period that he was in in the program that he'd actually he was he was dressing up as a woman on a regular basis and whatever. Yes. So they tackled yes. they tackled it there, but that was more yes. in a serious sense. Yes. Whereas you were trying to and get a bit of comedy. And they tackled it in some major films. Julie Waters was in a film with. Uh... Uh, a lodger who turned out to be... She thought he had somebody to stay, but it was actually the same person. Um, and a few things came out about the same time, uh, probably in the very early 2000s, late 90, 90s. But um, we were very fond of that idea because we thought it was a really interesting one. We had Sylvia Sims playing his mother, saying things like, you know, well, every man has his little hobby. With, with his father, it was pigeons. And he wants to be a woman. Don't you think there's a bit of a difference? You know... <laughs> So Linda's character was was very not very understanding at the beginning. Carol, you know, she's just and in fact we had the lovely Maureen Beatty playing her friend, who found it quite intriguing and said to George, "Look, you can come and dress up to me. I'll give you some help." And there was that free son of jealousy there, you know. And so it was all very. very have they repeated it? Have they repeated it on Four Extra? Has it been repeated? Yes. Has it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I must. I must. Mm. Must mm. listen out for and next. And the time. other man, which was the other. Yeah. Yeah. Radio Fantastic. Yes. So, so it turns out you obviously Linda comes back and back quite a bit in in your in your writing career, but you've also you also wrote for uh, Penelope Keith in Next yes. of Kin, and also of course Richard Wilson in Duck Patrol. I remember Duck Patrol. Yes. Tell us yes. a bit about work, working and writing for Penelope. She is hilariously wonderful I really love her and she's such a strong actress and when we wrote we had neighbours where we lived on the River Thames that's where we filmed Duck Patrol we had neighbours living next door who were about to go and live in France and they were quite grand and you'd hear them in the garden where, um, and the wife would be saying to the grandchildren if anybody smacks granny smacks and they were so excited that they weren't having to babysit anymore they were going to live in France and I thought what would happen if they couldn't go you know, we just had that idea of, and every time I mentioned it to any of my friends, they went, oh, God, being a parent again when you've got rid of them, you know. And um, and so we made her a very, she was a very unsympathetic character. And there are a few people who can do that. Penny is one of them, you know, and she can play unsympathetic and actually make people really care about her, mainly because she also can show vulnerability. You know, she did have a scene where she said, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, she's really talking to her son in heaven. After, because the, the the son and daughter-in-law die in a car crash, we did discuss an American version of this with Roseanne, um, and the <laughs> the conversation went: Do they have to die? Um, could they not go and get lost in a rainforest, and then they would come back? And Penelope, you know, Penelope's character Maggie um, would realise that actually it's not that she didn't want to be a mother; she just didn't know how to do it. By the end of episode, no, we said, and so it never happened. But it, but it has but, got it has been popular around the world in other places, hasn't oh, it? Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Australia yeah. loves it, and yeah. New Zealand and Canada. It's well, the, American, the Americans always want to mess and meddle, don't they? <laughs> bless them. <laughs> they do bless them, but they like the original. They like Penny's feistiness yeah. and an uncompromising character. You know, she stood up for those kids. That was the other thing. She had an amazing episode where it was George's. She found George's diary, or she'd been reading George's diary, the daughter. The daughter who was actually Penny Keith 40 years earlier. You know, she was actually very like her grandmother. 
and and she came home from school and Penny had got a birthday tea for her with all the fun. And uh, she said, what's all this about? She said, well, do you think I wouldn't know when your birthday is? She said, you know when my birthday is? She said, yes, of course, I know, I know when your birthday is. It's birthday tea. Let's um, blow out the cans, lovely trifle. And she said, it's not my birthday. I just wrote that in the diary to see if you were reading it. And, she, and Penny said, she does wonderful sort of double takes, Penny. She went, oh, OK, super. Trifle anyone? And she slapped it in George's face. And, of course, we thought they're going to be phoning Childline, all the people watching it. But the audience in the studio stood up and applauded. Fabulous. It was just really hilarious. And then Bill made her go up, Bill Gaunt, Andrew, went, made her go up and apologise. <laughs> so she gets pushed into the bedroom by him. And she's staring at these posters and she's looking at the one of the cure and says, he has rather awkward hair, doesn't he? And Bill said, tell her the watch. Anyway, they, he makes her apologise. And then they have that moment where she says, you know, actually, I do understand. You're very much... And the, the tentative arm comes almost round her, but not quite. And that's the end of the... It's a really touching... And she, she's vulnerable, Penny. You know, she's in the show. And she was vulnerable in um, in The Good Life. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, of course she was. Yeah, yeah. it's a very important... Well, and to, right, to, to the Man of Born as well. She was and vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Rich, Richard isn't vulnerable, but he is hilarious. In Duck Patrol. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We just had this idea of doing Duck Patrol on the river. We wanted it to be an ensemble piece. Uh, was that just like, one? Was that just one series? That one? Was it was it? one yeah, series, yeah. and there were lots of reasons for that. One, it took the whole LWT budget basically because we had security on the river. We had boats and things flying around, and all sorts of insurance and stuff. And we also had a very big star because we hadn't written it for Richard. Of course, when Richard said he wanted to do it, we were thrilled. But it, we did then have to rewrite the scripts. Because he was the money, you know, he was the one. Um, it was unlike sort of um, um, uh, Dad's Army because that was a pure ensemble at the beginning. They weren't; none of them were very well known. And of Richard course, of course, up. at this point, One Foot in the Grave was still going, wasn't it? If I remember yes, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, exactly. So he was a very big name, and, and uh, we really wanted him to have the screen time because people wanted to see him. And we had some other terrific, you know, actors. We had Samantha back in sale. We had um, Craig uh, Fairbrass, who played the beefy one. And um, and we had a very young David Tennant playing Darwin, who was interested in otter sprite and things. <laughs> and, you know, I think there was a lot we could have done with Duck Patrol. I think it was just too expensive for London Weekend. And it got mad, it got huge ratings at the beginning of that. Of that so you don't think you don't um, think the fact that he was had been very I mean bearing in mind before he did um, One Foot in the Grave I remember him being you know uh, the Doctor in Only When I Laugh yes, which exactly. wasn't a big role but he was a significant role and then he'd been yeah. he'd been in things like Crown Court as a barrister and all those kind of things yes, he was um, being, yeah. but he wasn't he wasn't massively a household name obviously with One Foot in the Grave he became a huge household name yeah. Do you think that hindered you a little bit as well? It did, because I think probably people wanted to be Victor Mel Meldry or Mortar on the Thames, you know. And to some extent, he was. He was quite uncompromising. He was quite jealous of Craig Fairbrass, the big he-man, sort of ex-lifeboatman -life who came in and um, took over virtually. Um, but he, and also he had a relationship. He had a, a girlfriend, Sue Johnson, who was the pub landlady up the road. 
So he was a, quite a soft, you know, there was a softness about him which hadn't been seen before. And, but we, his relationship with David Tennant, I really liked. And I would have liked to have uh, expanded that and done a lot more with it. Um, there was a lot going on, both at, at LWT in change terms. Richard was doing, I think, another series of On Foot in the Grave. Also. There was a lot going on there. And, um, and it was just too expensive. I just think they, they had a very limited budget. It was pretty much the start of tightening belts in ITV. And, uh, and this cost most of the budget, I think, because of all the, the uh, filming. I mean, it was pretty much shot on the water. We didn't really... We shot it, then showed it to the audience. And the audience applause was on the screening that they watched because it was filmed on location. Only on Distinct Nostalgia. When I ran out of children's books, I used to read from Woman's Own. Who knew a four-year-old would be gripped by an article on cross-stitch? We're uniting the ages with Generation Games, a series of comedy and drama monologues and duologues coming exclusively to Distinct Nostalgia. Stories exploring connections, friendships and relationships between people across different age groups, beginning with Missing You, starring June Brown and Sam Barnard. Mum thinks I need protecting, but I don't need protecting from love. Pity that social worker of his can't do something useful for a change. Contact the noise abatement lot. Put in a complaint. I like her, I said. And then, silence. What's the problem? I asked. Still take advantage of you, Mum warned. Missing You by Richard Verjet with the legendary June Brown only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz, where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember about. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner cell block. Cell block B. Prisoner cell block H. Simply choose your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Khyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> they're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know if I can accept that. That's another cracker, isn't it? They Uh, always are. (laughs) Only here. This year has claimed the lives of far too many people to coronavirus. One of the many we lost was the great comedian Eddie Large, one half of that fabulous double act, Little and Large. And he's asked, you know, when did you meet and all that... And he'd have the stock answers, you know, oh, we met by accident, you know, I ran him over on a zebra crossing, you know, things like that. In a special interview, Sid Little remembers his long-time comedy partner and their years together making people laugh. I'd be stood there and Eddie'd go like, uh, you know, look at him. If he turned sideways and stuck his tongue out, it looked like a zip. 
if he had four more navels, he'd look like a flute. You know, <laughs> you know, when he wears his blue suit, he looks like a, a refill for a viral. You know, because I was thin, I was really skinny, and Eddie was on the stocky side, and that's when the comedy started coming in. That's little remembers large only on distinct nostalgia, more than a podcast. And what was this um, Paradise Cafe that you did? Um, 13 part teen comedy mm. drama set in New Zealand. That must have been wonderful. Well, we, we weren't allowed to go. That's the first thing. <laughs> I'll tell you what, we first wrote it. It was, it was, it was first called, um, it, it, it was first supposed to be shot on, in Gower in Swansea. <laughs> Because I had spent my childhood there and there was a lovely cafe there and there was lots of surfers. And then we took it to um, uh, Endemol and their uh, independent uh, arm for children's entertainment there. Um, and we, they said, well, you know, why don't we take it to uh, America? Okay, that'd be nice. And then it got, we then it kind of, almost got out of our hands because we had this great idea we'd written the script we got the idea i mean it, what we wanted it to feel like was the, the was the uh, the atmosphere of press gang with the kids running the show you know because that's how we saw julia that's why we pulled julia out of that to do second thoughts um press gang was about it was like a, and dexter fletcher was in that with her and they were virtually like a sort of um catherine hepburn and spencer tracy couple they were they were written as and performed as an adult couple and we wanted the kids to be like that running a cafe on the beach because their father was a, a obsessed biologist and um an environmentalist and was always in the sea or out somewhere um and the relationships were there and we talked a lot about it to a lovely guy called Christopher Pilkington, who was our director, who was fantastic. Um, and they brought in very young writers, which we had the, we did the book for it, but they brought in very young writers, probably cheaper than us, and and a spiritual element, which was a good idea. They had the sea ghosts, you know, one of the characters. And it, yes, yeah, we did uh, two big series for that on the Cook Islands. Never even got a ticket, but very well received, and they were very pleased with it at the end of the It would have been quite nice to do more teenage stuff, but by then we were on to um, Next of Kin, I think, or, you know, we were doing other things anyway at that, at that point. Uh, but it is a quite nice idea to set the book up and then get younger writers in to do what was a teenage piece, you know, and the, the language and the surfing role and the, and the fact that they were using Indigenous writers in New Zealand, uh, in the Cook Islands as well. Yeah, some of those islands, those far-flung islands, are, are fantastic, aren't they? I mean, I remember, I think it was during the Commonwealth Games, uh, I teamed up with um, the guy who was actually my business partner for a while, James Hickman, um, Commonwealth swimmer, and uh, for a local radio station, we did a, a, a tour of all the different Commonwealth islands and talked about what they were preparing, how they were preparing for the Commonwealth Games. This was in... Oh, we're talking about 2002 now, a long time ago, nearly 20 years ago, would you believe? Um, and it was fascinating uh, learning about all these different places. And I remember the Cook Islands being particularly interesting. I, I mean, we, we don't know much about them at all, do we, really? They don't really get that much uh, exposure and coverage. We don't, and they're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And um, and it's a real pity we couldn't have gone. 
<laughs> so let's talk about your latest project then, which of course is uh, Conversations from a Long Marriage, which has yes. now started yes. on uh, Radio yeah. 4, um, Wednesdays, 6.30. Tell us a little bit about that. It's sort of my baby, which Gavin's very happy about because he's doing other things and working out other ideas. But I'd always written individually as well as a journalist, but also writing sketches for Pam Ayres on Ayres on the Air on radio. I always wanted to write a two-hander about a couple. Well, in fact, I wanted to write something for Joanna Lumley. And the reason I wanted to write something for Joanna is because I was fed up with watching comedies and dramas where any woman over 60, whatever, was in a penny or didn't seem to have an answer for anything or had no... She was either a bitch or she was a complete doormat. And I thought, no, it's not like anybody I've ever met or liked and I want to watch something or listen to something about people I like and know and... If nobody's writing, I'm going to. Anyway, I wrote Conversations from a Long Marriage, and it was and is a two-hander. And when Joanna said yes immediately, and she was lovely, she said, you've been listening at my window, Jan, when she read the script, which I thought was really nice. And uh, obviously she had to have a strong male lead. And Roger Allen, you know, he's... He's an absolute god. I, Joanna said all my all my friends want to be married to him when they listen to this because, A, he's got a fantastic voice, but, B, he's a really strong leading man. And between them, there's a lovely, lovely empathy. In fact, this we did, the, we did a pilot in 2018. Then we did a Christmas episode, and that was very well received, a Christmas special. And then we, then we were commissioned for first series, which came out last, uh, well, it began in December of 2019. And um, that was just four episodes, which is the way things are going at radio, just four. And then it had the most spectacular reviews I've ever had in my entire life, I have to say. And uh, and suddenly we were commissioned, I was commissioned for series two with six episodes being promoted to the prime 6.30 slot. And... I'm really, really proud of it because the two of them are exactly what you want to be doing in a long marriage. They they met in the summer of love. They faffed about Woodstock, Glastonbury. They love music. The, the, the series is punctured with music, which I am a control freak about. And um, I really am, having been... <laughs> but for the first series, we used a lot of American stuff, which I loved. You know, the Motown and the Mamas and Papas and Jefferson Airplane. The second series... We had this thing where it's going to be out on audio and therefore we can only have English music because of the rights. So that was good because I raided the kinks and all the lovely Scott Walker, who I was in love with, obviously. And uh, everything that was in the second series is, is British, which is great and lovely. And it reflects who they are. And they haven't got children. It's, it's intensely the two of them. They've lived apart. They've moved away from each other over the 40 years. They've had fights. They've had lots of romance. They, as, as Gillian Reynolds in the Sunday Times said, they love wine, food, sex and each other. And, it, and she said it doesn't matter if the children think it's, it's appalling that, young, that older people get up to that. Let's keep it for ourselves, which was nice. And the, the Radio Times said it was the best thing that either of them had ever done, which I thought, hang on, Joe might say, I actually did add fab. <laughs> Anyway, I wasn't arguing, but I just thought, I think probably was kind, but probably not accurate. 
So do you think it could work on TV? There's no reason why it couldn't, because they're beautiful faces as well as voices. Often television is, is a little bit frightened of the, not the static, but the, the small concept. You know, you, they never mention each other's names in this, which is what people identify with. I have so many people saying, this is, you're writing about us, you know. Um, and it's just the two of them. I mean, they do, they do go out and do stuff. There's, there's episodes in the hotel, there's episodes at weddings, and there's episodes, well, there was going to be an episode at Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> we recorded the second episode in, in between two lockdowns, but they still had to be in separate studios, which I was really worried about. But they became fun and flirty instantly, as they always would. So, and they had to kiss hands instead of each other, but that was another thing. But... The, the, I had to keep, it was like running a, to pin a tail on a escaping rodeo horse to try and work out what we were likely to have happening when this series goes out. In the end, I sort of gave up because actually we will ultimately get back to real life and I want the series to sort of last for a while. So you, you go, you know, there is a wedding and, and there is a, a gathering, there is a New Year's Eve party, it's a small one in the first episode, but that we we do refer to what what they were going through or what they had been going through, because obviously I thought it would all be over by Christmas. And she is absolutely brilliant, and she has got great timing. And she and Roger really love each other in the best sense. They just laugh all the time, and they like each other enormously, which shows. And I just think it's it's just life-enhancing to, to listen to them. I love listening to the... I'm just listening to the edits now and I'm laughing, you see, at my own work, which is tragic. And, and what about your, um, your, your play about the Queen? Yes. Well, this was, you know, in lockdown, I'd already written... Um, I was in the middle of writing series two of, of this, of Conversations from a Long Marriage, and then we, we got a call from a local theatre company in Southwold, uh, the theatre on the coast, saying... I want a topical-themed play to start the season, which we then thought was obviously going to be filled with people. Um, and the only thing people were talking about was Harry and Meghan going to Canada and the Queen's Summit. And I wanted to get the angle of, yes, but what it's about, why she's called the Summit, is she's a grandmother. It's not just a constitutional crisis. She's a grandmother losing some of her family and not seeing them again. And in one point in the in the play, Harry says, uh, she says, oh, you, you know, you, you didn't come to Sandringham for Christmas like I wanted you to. And he said, there'll be other Christmases. And she says, but how many for me? And we wanted that real family crisis, not just a, a big royal drama, but the fact that there were people here who, you know, the Queen particularly, who was trying to keep everyone together and would miss the fact that they were going. So it's funny, hilarious even, um, and it will it will have a, a screening down here, but I, I'm hoping it'll have another life in another theatre soon because the song is still going on, isn't it? And, of course, you know, they're a, they're a family, aren't they, that um, yeah. are making decisions about yeah. their family. OK, they're in the public eye, but, uh, you know, every family is different. There are different people in the family will deal with things in different ways and and um i think from what i can tell reading between the lines the queen wanted to sort of please her yeah. grandson in some way it, and she, and the queen obviously is very aware of the passing of time you know the duke of edinburgh is obviously getting very elderly she is as fit as anything but who knows and she just says to harry how many christmases for me 
And he, the young, he doesn't think of that. He just thinks, oh, I'll be back. But what we did at the end of it, which nobody had done, as Livy Purvis, who's a theatre critic, was saying, we, we brought up, Harry brought up the fact that they, the Queen and Philip, had gone to Malta for two years when she was about to be Queen. Nobody stopped them. She had two kids out there. Well, she brought them back. Charles and Anne came back to have the babies, went out again, having a riotous time in Malta. Often she left the kids with the Queen Mother and, and uh, her father. And as Harry says, nobody stopped you going. Why is there such a fuss about me? And there's a nice codicil at the end with Philip where she says, he says, no, I, I understand, he's right. At the moment, it's a stage play. It could be an audio, it could be a radio play, ultimately. It's a, a story of a, a family, really, and it happens to be royal. Uh, and what's it called? It's called All for One, I'm sorry, yes. So, Jan, what about the state of comedy today? You know, there's not a great deal of sort of observational stuff around, is there? I mean, I, I, I do like um, Two Doors Down, the one with uh, Elaine C. Smith and uh, Alex Norton. Oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yes, and that is very enjoyable, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about it as well is, it, you know, the, the characters are, are, are realistic um, and it's very observational. And, um, you know, it's not a lot of comedy today when the thing, the thing that does tend to get promoted is the ones where they're trying all the time to crack a joke um, and there's no sort of proper context, is there? You know what I mean? It's exactly, yeah. We were talking about that earlier, weren't we? Um, that... Getting a gag in isn't the point. And the best, right, if you, you master classes to watch Frasier um, or anything by Neil Simon in terms of, of stage play, um, to see how character and John Sullivan, to see how characters are what draws the comedy. And what we've, what we've got is, is people frantically trying to be funny, but not having wit in it. It's not witty. It isn't subtle. It isn't character-led. It's just people sparring. And sometimes you see a couple, actually, you think they, they, hate, it. they, they hate each other. They're just scoring points. They don't laugh at each other's jokes. They don't. And that's in conversations. Joanna's always falling out laughing at some stupid thing that Roger's done. Um, and they, there is a sort of empathy between them. There's no empathy. And it's just a sort of sparring match. And I think often what happens is they get a Perrier Award winner, thrust them back into television, give them a series, and they're not comedy writers. They're not able to structure an episodic drama, you know, that that fits, ticks all the boxes. I mean, there does definitely seem to be a bit of a dearth of, of good sort of um, comedy, doesn't there, in many ways? Yes, definitely. Well, when you think of Monty Python and, and shows like that coming out of use... You know, but I think that was much wittier than the things that are coming out of the youth that's considered a hot comedy today. And I, I'm not sure there is anything I would consider hot comedy that's coming out at the moment. Um, but that's not to say that it isn't there. It's just maybe they're not being bought by broadcasters. They, they're going for this broad strokes, is the word. The other thing, of course, is that people are too worried about taking risks and upsetting yes, people aren't scared, they and, and yeah. worried what they can and can't say and all that kind of thing people are afraid of what they can say i watched a very funny film called goodbye columbus the other day a vintage film with richard benjamin 69 and there were all sorts of references that you would never ever be allowed and it was never even considered a problem in those you know those far off days um and i think that's the danger I'm fighting for a, a very persecuted minority, the older woman, to be represented in comedy terms. 
and I'm determined to make her a powerful figure. Um, so I'm doing my bit, but um, I can't write... No, you, you can't please everybody and you can't write for everybody, as you say. No, we can't write for everybody. Go for your market. That's Yeah, I mean, the media tends to be, at the moment, obsessed, don't they, with um, sort of uh, aiming at... Um, sort of younger audiences rather than broad audiences. Refresh is the word, isn't it? Well, Jan, uh, it's been great to uh, to talk to you. Uh, just to remind everybody that um, uh, Conversations from a Long Marriage is on at half past six at the moment on Radio 4 on Wednesdays. You can hear it on BBC Sounds afterwards and, of course, you can also catch up on the first series as well um, if you uh, search on BBC Sounds. Um, Jan, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, to talk to you. Uh, I see you, you as one of the comedy legends. Second Thoughts was one of my favourite comedies. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been lovely. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I've enjoyed every minute, Ashley. Thank you. Distinct Nostalgia is home to some fascinating conversations with the names behind some iconic films of the 20th century. And we've a special treasure trove of interviews and reunions around Great British Film. There's Brief Encounter. I was making my first film at the age of 19 and so was playing Beryl, the young girl serving the teas in the refreshment room. I'm the last surviving member of this and I suppose I'm getting rather elderly. Plus Brassed Off. We didn't know that brass band music was going to be that popular. It just became a real word of mouth people's film. It stayed in the top ten in London for nearly three or four months I think and it, it, we eventually had to go up and ask them to stop showing it in Leeds because it was going to ruin the, uh, the video launch date. And Oliver. The phone went and my mum shouted up saying, oh, you got the part of Oliver. And I remember being, because I was eight at the time, thinking, great, I'm going to have like six months off school. And that's all I thought. I didn't think anything else of it. Distinct Nostalgia. Celebrating great British movies. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or browse our existing programmes at distinctnostalgia.com. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.